but it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Introducing today's episode is an iconic song from the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily press, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? Hi, this is Justin Hippert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been focusing on the phrase from the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In the last episode, we talked about the meaning of the word apostolic. Specifically, as we looked at the writings of the church fathers, apostolic meant that the church leaders were ordained in an unbroken line of succession that went all the way back to the apostles. However, it wasn't enough to say, I am a priest or bishop in the apostolic succession. Following the teachings of the apostles was also equally important, and throughout history we see plenty of examples of legitimately ordained bishops and priests abuse their position by veering wildly from the apostles' teaching. Today I want to go a little deeper into this idea of an apostolic church by talking about holy tradition, hence the opening song. Specifically, I want to talk about what holy tradition isn't, what it is, and then I want to propose to you that every Christian operates similarly to Catholics with respect to holy tradition. As a Protestant, I was always told that Catholics have three separate and independent sources of revelation, scripture, holy tradition, and the magisterium. The way Protestants often talk about it is to suggest that there isn't really an overlap of these three facets. In fact, these three facets may often contradict each other. So the way I thought about it is if you ask a Catholic where some doctrine or practice was in the Bible, they might say something like, it's not, but it's holy tradition. In other words, Protestants often accuse Catholics of just making up beliefs and then calling it holy tradition. To this, Protestants will often quote Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees in Mark 7.13, where Jesus tells them that their traditions nullify the word of God. In doing this, Protestants seemingly create a juxtaposition between scripture and tradition, as though the temptation is to always put tradition ahead of scripture. However, when I became a Catholic, I discovered that holy tradition is something very different than Protestants claim. Surprise, surprise. If you haven't listened to my second episode called The Language of Catholicism, I want to encourage you to listen to that. In that episode, I focus on how Protestants and Catholics often believe very similar things, but talk past each other because they have different worldviews and languages that they use to describe those worldviews. What tends to happen when we don't understand a worldview or we use our own language limitations to describe a foreign worldview is that we'll create straw man fallacies. This is also something I talked about in episode one entitled Get to the Why. In becoming Catholic, what I discovered about holy tradition is not that it's an independent facet of revelation, but rather interdependent and closely tied to scripture. Before we get too deep into that, let's talk about scripture for just a second. While the Bible can seem like a big book and the Gospels can seem like long accounts of Jesus' life, when you think about it, the stories in the Bible could be much longer. The Gospels contain a very small amount of Jesus' earthly existence. In fact, John ends his Gospel account by stating, quote, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. End quote. 
So we have to assume, not like it's really an assumption, that while the Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God, it does not contain the exhaustive details of Jesus's life. Furthermore, we know that the apostles spent months and years with various churches teaching and training leaders. But what do we have of those teachings? We don't have recordings or transcriptions of their teachings. Really, what we mainly have are letters that the apostles wrote as a follow-up after their time ministering in those communities, books like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, etc. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2.15, Paul instructs the church at Thessalonica to, quote, "...stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us either by word of mouth or by letter." End quote. In other words, Paul was already teaching them by word of mouth. Now his letter, which we call sacred scripture, the word of God, is reminding them to hold on to those teachings. What did he tell them orally? that we don't completely know. We don't have a transcription of his teachings. We have his letter that he wrote after the fact, affirming and reminding them of his teachings. This doesn't mean that scripture is any less infallible or valuable. It just means that scripture is not the exhaustive teachings or stories of Jesus and the apostles. What tradition helps us do is fill in the gaps. It helps us better understand the New Testament. There are lots of passages that are nebulous or confusing. As proof, we only need to look at the myriads of church denominations out there that interpret passages of scripture wildly differently. What the Catholic Church does is consider what the people closest to the apostles had to say about a particular idea in scripture. Let me give you an example. Catholics believe in the Immaculate Conception, which means we believe that Mary was born without original sin. A Protestant would say that the idea of the Immaculate Conception is not based on Scripture. Are they right? Does the Bible explicitly say the words, Mary was born without original sin? No, but it does state it implicitly. Where? Luke one twenty eight in Gabriel's greeting to Mary, he says, Hail, full of grace. The Greek word that's used in that greeting is kekeratomene. Kekeratomene. It's the only time in the Bible that word is used. So how do we know what kekeratomene means? Why do we translate it to mean full of grace when Protestant translations like the King James Bible say highly favored one? And how do we know that kekeratomene means that Mary was born without original sin? Well, we listen to the early church fathers. They might be able to shed light on what Luke meant when he wrote the word kekeratomene. For example, in 155 AD, Justin Martyr wrote the following, quote, Jesus became man by the virgin, so that the course which was taken by disobedience in the beginning through the agency of the segment might be also the very course by which it would be put down. Eve, a virgin and undefiled, conceived the word of the servant and bore disobedience and death. But the virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced to her the glad tidings that the spirit of the Lord would come upon her and the power of the Most High would overshadow her, for which reason the Holy One being born of her is the Son of God. And she replied, Be it done unto me according to your word. End quote. In other words, Justin Martyr is making this clear typological comparison between Eve, who was born without original sin, and the Blessed Virgin Mary. In 189, Irenaeus wrote the following, quote, The knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. What the Virgin Eve had bound in unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosed through faith. End quote. So we see in the early church fathers this idea that Mary is the new Eve, even though this is not something explicitly stated in Scripture. We don't see anywhere where it says Mary is the new Eve. So why should we listen to the early church fathers, people like Ignatius of Antioch, Clement I, Justin Martyr, or Irenaeus? There's two reasons. 
First, the early church fathers didn't have a Bible like we have now. They had parts of the Bible, a gospel account here and there, some of the apostles' letters. The church at Corinth didn't start because one day they got a letter from Paul. They started long before 1 Corinthians was ever written. They learned Christianity directly from the mouths of the apostles. So when the early church fathers talk about an idea that's in scripture that may be confusing, nebulous, or implicit, they might know better than us what the apostles meant when they wrote those words. Secondly, the early church fathers were spread out all over the place. Jerusalem, Syria, modern-day Turkey, Greece, Italy, Egypt. Yet, they all have remarkable similar takes on doctrines and practices. Remember, this is long before phones, email, and the Postal Express. To disseminate ideas, someone had to literally take those ideas by person from one place to the next. Those journeys were long and arduous. So the fact that we see remarkably similar doctrines and practices spread throughout the world at such an early time in history can mean only one thing. This was the teaching of the apostles, the original missionaries to these churches. We are nearly 2,000 years and thousands of miles removed from the context of scripture. How should we presume to know more than the people that actually followed the apostles or the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those that followed the apostles? To assume we know better and contradict those closest to the apostles reeks of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Listen to how the Catechism describes this dance between scripture and tradition in paragraphs 80 to 82, as read by my daughter Analia. One common source. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture, then, are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. Two distinct modes of transmission. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. What this means is that scripture and holy tradition are not so much independent as they are interdependent. For example, when a church father taught something that went contrary to scripture, the church rejected such a teaching because nothing can be true that contradicts the word of God. In the same way, when a church father varies wildly from other church fathers on a particular doctrine, this is generally also rejected, especially if they are further out in the timeline of church history. Scripture is infallible, the church fathers are not. So we have to consider the breadth of church fathers, not just one particular church father. So someone like Clement or Ignatius of Antioch gets a little more weight in their teaching because they were actual disciples of the apostles. Someone like Justin Martyr was born around the time that John died, but didn't know any of the apostles personally. But he is one generation removed from the apostles. He likely learned from people that knew or heard the apostles personally. When Catholics think of holy tradition, we think of the lens by which we look at scripture or the framework by which we interpret scripture. And this is where I want to make the case that every single Christian has some sort of holy tradition that they value just like Catholics do, even though they don't recognize it or admit it. 
If you've heard my story, you know that I grew up in a Sabbatarian denomination called Seventh-day Baptist. This group got started in the 1600s, about a century after the Protestant Reformation, when a group of people read the Bible and said, the Bible tells us over and over to obey the Sabbath. What is the Jewish Sabbath? It's Saturday. Therefore, the church is operating in grave error. They're following this tradition of keeping Sunday holy when the Bible clearly says to keep the Saturday Sabbath holy. Are they right? In one sense, yes, they are right. The Bible is pretty explicit about keeping the seventh day of the week holy. However, there's a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about not being obliged to keep the Jewish Sabbath, and we see this new concept introduced called the Lord's Day. So from the Catholic perspective, we would ask, okay, how should we understand this concept of the Lord's Day or this idea that we see where Christians aren't obliged to keep the law? Can the church fathers shed light on what the apostles had taught to the churches? We can start with the Didache, which is believed to predate some of the books of the New Testament, and it states, quote, But every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure, end quote. The letter of Barnabas, which also predates some of the New Testament, states, quote, We keep the eighth day with joyfulness, the day also in which Jesus rose again from the dead, end quote. Ignatius of Antioch, a disciple of John, wrote the following in 110 AD, quote, Those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's Day, in which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. End quote. And Justin Martyr in 155 wrote the following, quote, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. End quote. So what we clearly see, with the help of the early church fathers, is that the apostles introduced this concept called the Lord's Day, where Christians gathered on the eighth day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. In fact, it was kind of like every week they relived the Passion of Christ. They fasted on Fridays, the day Jesus was crucified, and celebrated on Sundays, the day Jesus rose from the dead. A Seventh-day Baptist might argue that Catholics, and really any group that gathers on Sunday, are putting tradition above Scripture or nullifying Scripture with tradition. If you're familiar with the Reformation, you may know the concept of sola scriptura, that Scripture alone is the sole rule and norm of faith and life. One of the Protestant claims in is that Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, Scripture cross-references itself, and so to understand Scripture, we have to look at other Scripture. And we can understand all of Scripture merely by looking at Scripture alone. And that's what Seventh-day Baptists do when they get to passages like Colossians 2.16, which says, quote, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, end quote. They say, well, how should we interpret this passage in light of all the Old Testament verses that tell us to honor the Sabbath? And the conclusion that they come to is that this reference of the Sabbath is not the weekly Sabbath, but a holiday Sabbath, because why would Scripture contradict Scripture? What's the framework at play by which they do this? The answer is principles established in the Reformation. Principles like sola scriptura, or Scripture interpreting Scripture neither of which, by the way, are articulated in the Bible. You won't find a verse in the Bible that explicitly says Scripture alone is the sole rule and norm for faith and life. 
In fact, such a premise contradicts passages like 1 Thessalonians 2.15, where Paul instructs the church at Thessalonica to, quote, stand firm and hold to the traditions which were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter, end quote. Sola Scriptura was obviously impossible for the first number of decades in the life of the church when they didn't have any of the gospel accounts or letters from the apostles. How can scripture be the sole rule and norm of faith and life for some, but not others? This premise of Sola Scriptura is illogical because it's impossible. However, since the Reformation, this is the premise by which swaths of Protestants interpret scripture. Whereas Catholics look at scripture through the lens of the church fathers, the Protestant Reformation encouraged Christians to read scripture for themselves because everything they needed was contained exclusively in the passage of scriptures. What is that premise? That is a form of tradition. It's the framework or lens by which Protestants interpret scripture. Furthermore, if you think about it, there's also another tradition at play in the way that Protestants look at scripture. They'll consider the viewpoints of certain individuals at convenient times. For example, Seventh-day Baptists will point to their founders and the way they read scripture and discovered the Seventh-day Sabbath. They'll tell you that their ideas aren't based on that tradition, but rather that tradition helped them understand what's in scripture. This is exactly how Catholics think about holy tradition. Let's consider Calvinists who believe in the five points of Calvinism as expressed in the mnemonic TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. None of these expressions are explicit in scripture. A Calvinist will, of course, argue that they are implicit, but as they interpret scripture, they do so with the lens of Calvinism. Now, I mentioned that Protestants will consider the viewpoints of certain individuals at convenient times, and a clear example of this is the concept of the Trinity. Tertullian, an early church father who lived from 160 to 225 AD, is believed to be the first person to coin the term Trinity. The word Trinity isn't explicitly in the Bible. Furthermore, during the Arian controversy in the 4th century, something I talked about in episode 65, the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea dogmatically expressed what they believed to be always the true teachings of the apostles, both in written word and word of mouth. And that is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. So when you ask a Protestant, why do you believe in the Trinity? They may point to particular passages to show you how the concept of the Trinity is implicit in scripture, but what they're operating from is a lens and a framework based on certain church fathers and councils that has laid the foundation of the Trinity by which we read and understand these passages of scripture. That's holy tradition as Catholics define it. In the same way, most Protestants would disagree with Sabbatarian groups like Seventh-day Baptists or Seventh-day Adventists because they are operating with the lens of church tradition, how the church has historically understood the concept of the Lord's Day. We all look at scripture through various lenses and frameworks, even when we don't realize it. We pick and choose which historical or even contemporary figures to influence how we understand what is both explicit and implicit in scripture. This is called holy tradition. Whereas Protestants will tell you they don't, even though they do, the Catholic Church as well as the Orthodox Church fully admits to relying on holy tradition and will tell you plainly which church fathers they accept as reliable, like Ignatius of Antioch, and which church fathers they reject as heretical, like Arius and Novation. While Protestants conveniently pick and choose which people and traditions to follow, the Catholic Church follows a very consistent thread, not only a consensus found in the Church Fathers, but a belief that the Holy Spirit continues to speak through Church Councils, just as he did in the First Council of Jerusalem. 
What's really important to understand, and I'm going to quote my friend Matt Swaim here from the On the Journey podcast in their recent series on the church, which you should totally listen to. I've linked to it in the show notes is that one of the fundamental differences between Protestants and Catholics is that Protestants don't think the Catholic Church today is the same Catholic Church that existed in the first century. They believe that there's some sort of disconnect, whether they call it the great apostasy or something more nebulous and less defined. However, the Catholic Church maintains that we are the same church founded in Rome by Saints Peter and Paul. The apostolic succession continues to this very day with Pope Francis as the successor of St. Peter, as the Bishop of Rome. The Second Vatican Council was the latest in a continued tradition of church councils that began with the Council of Jerusalem, which we read about in Acts 15. And this is why we listen to the church fathers like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp of Smyrna, Papias of Hierapolis, etc., They weren't just a bunch of random Christians. They were people entrusted to carry on the mission and teaching of the apostles after their death, and as such, become some of the first pastors of our church. To ignore them, or to disregard them, would be to say that their church is not our church today. Let me end with this. Jesus told Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. The Catholic Church takes that promise seriously. It is why we treasure the holy tradition of the church, because the Catholic Church, as the bride of Christ, was entrusted with the mission to bring and foster the kingdom of heaven on this earth. It's never gone away, because Jesus has kept his promise to protect his bride. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.